professor. Like church. <laughs> Is it like church too? Uh, Welcome, everyone, uh, to um, what for Princeton is a very important occasion, which is the opportunity for all of us in the university who have been involved in the strategic planning for the future of the School of Engineering and Applied Science to really tell you, the members of our family, uh, what we hope to achieve over the next 10 years. My job uh, is to briefly do two things. One is try and put this strategic planning process into some kind of context with respect to the rest of the university. And then my most important task is to introduce Dean Clave. So let me try and begin with context. The school of engineering and applied science at Princeton is a jewel in many respects. It is a very fine school of engineering that has one great advantage that few other great engineering schools can boast, and that is it is embedded in the heart of the finest undergraduate and graduate research university in this country. What that means is that our School of Engineering and Applied Science has the potential, because of this binding to the rest of the university, to create for our school a unique identity in the country, and in fact in the world, by capitalizing on the strengths that exist everywhere else in the university. Now, why is planning for the future of the engineering school now so important? And I think the answer is probably known to every single person in this room. And that is the field of engineering is really changing. 21st century engineering is going to be different. It is going to look different than 20th century engineering. The field is exploding. The opportunities for engineering to make the world a better place are just simply extraordinary. But what it also means, if the field is changing, it also means that the way we educate future engineers has to change too. And that is really at the heart of this strategic plan. It is the challenge to those of us at Princeton who believe, as I think we all fervently do, that education coupled with world-class research uh, is a partnership that produces better education and it produces better research at the same time. And this is our chance for uh, Princeton to really lead the nation in thinking about how engineering research and teaching in the 21st century is going to be done. Now, the one thing that is very clear, at least to me and I suspect to everybody in this room, is that the impact of engineering on all of the citizens of this country and, in fact, the citizens of the world is increasing that technology and all of its ramifications are affecting individual lives in ways that, that are truly profound. 
So when we think about engineering, when we think about creating new things for a better world, we also have to think about the way that that has its effect on individuals in the world. And for this reason, our, the way we have thought about the strategic plan for the school is to think about not just the pure science and the pure, pure technology, the pure engineering, but its ripple effects, how it in fact uh, affects uh, individuals who are living in Omaha, Nebraska, and how it affects individuals uh, living in Caracas or living in Nairobi or living in Beijing. Uh, because the technology that is being developed here is having ripple effects to individuals all over the world. When uh, I began uh, the search to find uh, the Dean of Engineering and Applied Science uh, for Princeton University about two and a half years ago, I was really looking for someone who could come and galvanize uh, our thinking about 21st century engineering uh, in the context of research and education. I was looking for a charismatic leader. I was looking for a distinguished scientist. I was looking for someone who knew something about management. I was looking for someone who could inspire us. Uh, to think about how to take this already very, very fine engineering school and make it even better. And I believe uh, that when the search committee, uh, so ably chaired by Professor Sigurd Wagner, uh, came to me with the uh, recommendation of the committee that I appoint uh, Maria Clave, I could not have been more pleased because, in fact, she was my uh, secret choice as well. Uh, after having met uh, all of the candidates. And uh, certainly, uh, I have uh, believed uh, from the day that Maria was appointed a year and a half ago uh, that this indeed is the right choice for Princeton. Uh, Maria was educated at the University of Alberta in Canada, and I promise you that had nothing to do <laughs> with the choice. Um, uh, she had uh, began an academic career uh, in mathematics, uh, moved to computer science, where she became uh, a very fine theoretical computer scientist, uh, taught at uh, um, the University of Toronto, and went from there uh, to IBM and spent eight years at IBM uh, in their research group. From there, she was recruited back into academia to the University of British Columbia, where she chaired the computer science department there, and then rose through the uh, academic administration ranks to become their dean of science. And it was from that position that she agreed to come to Princeton a year and a half ago. What she has done since then in putting in place a very careful, thoughtful, imaginative, and ambitious strategic planning process is, uh, in my view, uh, simply remarkable. And I am very proud to now introduce uh, Dean Clave to you so that she can tell you about this wonderful plan. Maria.
Thank you, Shirley. Can you hear me at the back of the room? Okay, we have about, I'd say, 10 empty seats still on this side and another sort of six to eight over there. So those of you standing at the back, please come and fill in those seats because there'll be other people who need to come and stand at the back who get here later than you did. Um, the first thing, and we also have a few seats in the middle as well. The first thing I want to say is thank you. Uh, thank you to Shirley. Thank you for hiring me, Shirley. Thank you to the search committee. Thank you for picking me. But most of all, thank you to all the people who have been involved in our strategic planning process over the last year. And I want to ask uh, four people to stand up. Kyle, Sanj, Jane, where are you, Jane? There she is, and Ben. Okay, these are the four people um, who really made it possible. All the hard work of organizing, all the great ideas, all the choice of the people who are going to lead things came out of those four people. Now, there's two other people I want to recognize right at the beginning. Don Dixon. Don. <clears throat> and... Uh, Howard, Howard Cox, are you here? Maybe Howard isn't with us today, and I just want to recognize that we could not have done what we did without the very strong support that we had from Don Dixon and Howard Cox to make possible all the things that happened. Now, um, raise your hand if you were at one of the road shows. Thank you for coming. Did you bring 10 people with you? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're one of the strategic planning workshops. Thank you again for coming. I'm going to be giving you essentially the same presentation that I gave to the trustees on April 2nd. It's very, very slightly modified, but it's essentially the same one. And one of the reasons I want to do this is I want you to see what the trustees were responding to and I have to say that the enthusiasm from the trustees was at a level that I just never could have dreamed of, dreamed of. And you know, part of, I think, the reason they were so enthusiastic is that the ideas we are putting forward, they're not my ideas. They're not even Kyle, Sanj, Jane, and Ben's ideas. They're the ideas of the Princeton family, not even just the School of Engineering and Applied Science family, of the entire family. Everybody contributed to this, the humanities, the social sciences, the sciences, our alumni. It is definitely a team project. So, Engineering for a Better World, the Princeton Vision. In this presentation, I'm going to talk briefly about the context in which we were doing the strategic planning, even more briefly about the process, because I think many in the room were actually part of the process and you know about it, and if you don't, there's lots of information on our website about what we actually did. And then, of course, the most important part is to talk about the actual vision we're proposing. And at the end of this presentation, we have hard copies, uh, even glossy hard copies, of the vision available for you, and it's also available online. So let me start by the most important question. 
Now, you are not allowed to answer this if you are a student, faculty, or staff at Princeton. So it has to be answered by an alum. And you're not allowed to answer if you were one of the roadshows, because then you know the answer. So, why does Princeton need a great engineering school? <laughs> Mark, Mac. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Eric. It should be great. It's, that, it's a, Princeton has an engineering school, it should be great. That's a great answer. Why else, Eric? To make the world a better place. Um, yes. Engineering is important. Engineering is important. Yes, Vicki. There's going to be a new uh, blending of not just engineering alone, but so many technologies and sciences will be blending in new ways, and that's why it has to be a strong Could you hear Vicki at the back? She got it perfectly because. Engineering in the 21st century is a new kind of engineering. And for Princeton to play its role in the world, it has to have an engineering school that reflects that and plays a leadership role. You all got it right, but Vicki said it perfectly. Now one of the things that you need to start out with if you're trying to figure out where an organization should go in the future is you have to figure out where it is right now. And so we might well ask, how is Princeton's engineering school currently positioned relative to other engineering schools? Now there are such things called rankings. Raise your hand if you've ever read any of the US News and Re World Report rankings. Whoa, funny thing. So um, you might ask, how are we ranked according to US News and World Report? Well, um, they didn't do an undergraduate ranking this year. A year ago, we were ranked 11th as an undergraduate engineering school. Okay, not great, but not terrible. Two, a year ago, we were ranked in terms of a graduate engineering school as 18th. And what I'm really delighted about is that over the year of our strategic planning, so last year we were 18th and Harvard was 17th. This year we're 16th and Harvard is 18th. <laughs> If one year of strategic planning, <laughs> just the planning part, can move us to a head, think of what 10 years of implementation will do for us. Now, um, US News and World Report, I mean, there's absolutely no question. People pay attention to it. But everybody, um, you know, sort of kibitzes about maybe they're not really measuring the right things. And so academics tend to think that the right measurement is the National Research Council's ranking. Unfortunately, they don't do it very often. The last one was in 1995, we were, 50, we were 13th, and the next one is likely to come out next year. Uh, hopefully we'll have moved, well let's see, it could be 20 stages ahead if it was two for every year. Maybe just two stages ahead is more likely. But, um, but there are other kinds of metrics that you might want to look at when considering an engineering school. So what this chart shows you, it shows you um, a total of seven engineering schools, and it shows you the amount of research funding per faculty member that each one is bringing in. That's the, uh, the black bar. And it shows you the percent of faculty who are members of the National Academy of Engineering. And you might say, well, why did you pick those seven universities to look at? Well, obviously, Princeton we picked because we're Princeton. MIT, Stanford, and Berkeley are ranked number one 
MIT has been ranked as the top engineering school for quite a while. Stanford and Berkeley are usually either tied for second place or share second and third in some order. Uh, Illinois is currently number four. Cornell is the only Ivy League university with an engineering school in the top ten. And Caltech is there. They're usually somewhere between fifth and seventh because they're the only engineering school in the top ten of comparable size to the Princeton School. And if you look at those at our situation, you can see that we're not that far out of the top five in terms of the funding per faculty member. And we're also doing reasonably well in terms of our percent of faculty who are in the National Academy of Engineering. And on that particular note, I want to say um, Jim Way, the previous dean of engineering, did a phenomenal amount for the School of Engineering. And everything that is in the strategic plan and the directions that we we're proposing to go in build on he, what he did. And in particular, if you look at the growth in the percent of faculty who are in the National Academy of Engineering over the 11 years that he was dean, it was a very substantial growth. And so I, I probably won't remember to acknowledge all the contributions that Jim made and, in fact, that other prior deans, Hisashi Kobayashi and Bob Zhang, I'm very happy to have Bob here with us today in the audience, um, they all made very strong contributions bringing the School of Engineering forward. And so everything that has been happening over the last year in terms of strategic planning and everything that we will do in the future is building on a very strong tradition for the School of Engineering. Now you might also ask, well, well, how about size? And here are those same seven engineering schools, and you can see we've given you the numbers of tenure-track faculty, uh, the numbers of bachelor's degrees in engineering that were produced, these are the numbers in 2003, master's degrees and PhDs, and then the total of those. And as you can see, we have the best faculty-to-student ratio of any of the universities, but we're also small. Caltech is the only other university sort of in this grouping that has a comparable kind of size. It's slightly smaller than we are. So another thing that we'd want to think about in terms of the context is to look at what traditional engineering educational research does and how that matches the challenges and the changes that are happening as we move into the next century. And you can probably read more quickly than I can read them out loud, but for example, most of them have to do with the fact that both education and research tend to happen within individual disciplines, but the problems that we need to solve require interdisciplinary solutions. Every engineering school is trying to deal with this because we need to find ways to bring both our faculties and our students, our research and our education, to bring together the different disciplines so that both the students and the researchers can take advantage of the different perspectives and the different sets of knowledge from the different disciplines. You'll also see a bit about um, the fact that where our students and where our research needs to have impact is out in the real world. But traditionally, engineering schools tend to be fairly um, <coughs> You know, students learn within the engineering school and then they go out afterwards into the real world and there isn't a lot of interchange during their actual education. It's also the case that 
Um, engineering schools tend to primarily teach engineering students. And one of the things that we believe is incredibly important is that all students understand about technology and its role in the world. Technology is much too important to be left to the engineers of the world, even though the engineers of the world are fantastic. But it can't be only the engineers that are responsible for the decisions that are made. And in fact, today, it's many of the decisions that are being made by politicians or by government officials who understand very little about engineering. So just very briefly to talk about the strategic planning process. There's only one thing that we wanted to accomplish with strategic planning. And that was that whatever came out of this process, it be something that genuinely reflected the input from the people to whom this plan has to belong. Now, who does the work in terms of implementing something? It's not the dean. It's not the president. It primarily is going to be the faculty, the staff, and the students, and the alumni. Those really are the groups that have to make something happen. And so what we tried to do with our process was to get the faculty, the students, staff, and not just the engineering faculty, but faculty from all across the university, and our alumni involved in deciding what the future direction should be. And probably the thing I'm most proud of, of everything, is that at the beginning of the process, we asked our faculty members to pick two of the 11 one-day strategic planning workshops that were held during the fall. Pick any two out of the 11, but come to two. Over 90% of the faculty came to at least one workshop. And on average, the number of workshops they attended was three. Now, this may not sound like a big deal, but if you know how busy faculty members are and how much they hate strategic planning, <laughs> you would understand that this was one of the biggest successes for strategic planning ever done in the history of universities. Now, those four people I made stand up at the beginning, Kyle, Sands, Jane, and Ben, that's who did it. They did it because they figured out that the planning committees for the workshops should cover virtually the entire School of Engineering, most of the rest of the universities, and seeing they got everyone involved in planning the workshops, of course they showed up. Okay. Here are the three major components of the plan. We will set a new standard for engineering education and research by doing, focusing on these three things. Number one, educating leaders. Okay, you're Princeton alumni. Educating leaders, that's a no-brainer. That's what Princeton does. The piece about this is different is that when we say educating leaders, we don't mean just educating engineering students to become leaders. We mean educating all the students at Princeton about engineering and technology so that when they become leaders in whatever areas they go into, they have on a unique level of understanding why technology is important, what are the pitfalls, what are the opportunities. The second one is instilling our teaching and research with an interdisciplinary perspective. Now, it's easy to write that. This is something that every single leading engineering school is trying to do. 
it's really hard to accomplish. So a little bit later, I'm going to tell you why am I so confident that Princeton can actually accomplish this. The third one is to focus our research on problems that are really important to society and do so with an understanding of the full societal context. So what we're trying to avoid is having people work on a technology that is trying to solve a major problem, but where the people who are working on it have such a narrow perspective or a narrow are so focused on the technology that they're not looking at the possible other implications, which could be positive, but often can be negative as well. And so we really want our students and our researchers, our faculty, when they are working on a particular problem and they find a solution, that they are looking at what the broad context of that solution is, not just at the narrow problem that they were trying to solve. Okay, so why is Princeton the university that could actually make this happen? I mean, I have to say, if you want to go, if you look at MIT's webpage or Stanford or Berkeley's webpage, <laughs> I think we didn't make enough motion. <laughs> I, I think this is an energy um, conservation measure that if there's not enough motion, the lights go out. <laughs> now, you don't usually have this problem, but clearly. Maybe there's not, not enough heat in the room. Um, if you look at MIT, Berkeley, Stanford, and so on, they all say the same things. They all want to educate leaders. They want to do interdisciplinary research and education. And, and increasingly, they want to address problems in their full societal context. Why are we the ones that can make it happen? Well, Shirley said this right at the beginning. What's unique about Princeton is that we are an engineering, engineering school that is already integrated, much more integrated than our competitors into the rest of the university, and the rest of the university is fabulous. Okay, that's first. Second, sometimes being smaller is an advantage. Because, you know, it's the Queen Mary versus the kayak. We can turn more quickly. We know that we cannot be the best unless we collaborate. We're never going to be large enough to succeed without collaboration. And we're small enough that we can decide to change and we can do it. The third one. Shirley said this as well. In fact, I think you gave my whole talk, Shirley. She was talking about this partnership of education and research and how teaching and research can reinforce each other. Now, I can tell you there are many other outstanding research universities that claim they really care about teaching. And I have to say, nobody cares at the same level as Princeton cares. We have a tradition of really caring about undergraduate teaching and graduate teaching. And we have a tradition of being an outstanding research university. Our plan requires both of those strengths. It requires a commitment to maintaining both of those in balance and in a synergistic relationship. Nobody else has that working as well as Princeton does today. The fourth one, commitment to achieving diversity at all levels. 
one of the things that every high-tech industry is trying to do right now is get more women and underrepresented groups into their employee base. The reason they're trying to do this is because they really believe and they have evidence to show that unless you get the people who are creating the technology to reflect the diversity of society, you don't get as good solutions. You don't get the solutions that are going to actually address the needs of the world. Well, there's a great thing about being at Princeton. We have a female president. We have a, f yes, you can applaud. <laughs> At least another month, we have a female provost. <laughs> we have a female dean of the college, dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, dean of the engineering school. We have a female dean of admissions. We have more women in the senior leadership of this university than any other university I know of. Now, you know, I realize that people can question this, but in the sense you might say, how did Princeton get so far ahead so quickly? No. No. I just want to tell you, the average percentage for um, women in engineering as undergraduate uh, majors in the country is 20%, two zero. All right? We have 30%. But for the incoming freshman class, we have 37.5% women in the incoming freshman class. 37.5%. Now, I announced this to a group of uh, incoming freshmen and their parents, and there was huge applause. Who applauded? The guys. <laughs> you got it. They were just thrilled. This is going to become the best place to come as a male engineering school student. <laughs> Because we're going to be the only one that has equal numbers of women. Um, frankly, we also do, I mean, I, we do well for African Americans. We don't do quite as well for Hispanics. But we have and have had for a long time a huge commitment to diversity. And that makes a really big difference. You couldn't do this without having fabulous students. And I have to say, one of the most important things about Princeton are its students. And when I'm trying to recruit faculty, I just say, you know, the students are to die for. And they are. They are just, it's not, for me, it's not just because they're so bright. And they are. It's not just because they're so well-rounded, so multi-talented. But they are. It's because of their heart, their spirit. It's because they believe that the whole point of excellence is to make the world a better place. And the fact that we can do what we're going to do in this vision really depends on having a family, a community, a set of students, and most importantly, a set of alumni who believe in the vision and who are committed to this university in a way that no other university students and alumni are committed to it. So this is why we can do what we say we're going to do. This is why we will succeed. Let me just say why we must lead the way. 
You all know Princeton's informal motto. In the nation's service, in the service of all nations. I think you all recognize that engineering is changing as we move forward in the 21st century. And I hope you will agree with me based on what we've just been through. We are uniquely qualified to do this. Now, Princeton being Princeton, how could we not do it? This is ours to do. It's our mission. It's our vision. It's going to happen. So, strategic planning initiatives. Well, we've already said engineering education is going to be a huge part of what we do. It's our number one initiative. The second one is we have to create an environment for high-impact interdisciplinary research. And the third one is we have picked, sorry about that, a number of focused research initiatives that are specifically designed to address societal needs and are in areas where we can take advantage of the strengths of Princeton outside the engineering school, where we can bring together the engineering school with other parts of the university and really become leaders in the world of what we're doing and make a huge difference. So let me very quickly go through leadership in engineering education. Here are the things that we want to be able to address. First of all, broadly educate future leaders at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Frankly, I think we do a pretty good job at the undergraduate level right now. I think we do a good job at the graduate level, but the thing we fail at doing at the, at the graduate level is we don't give our graduate students as much of the access to the richness of Princeton. The, just the wealth of opportunities that are here in terms of such a wonderful university that's so strong in so many areas. So we're going to do better at that. We're going to be, of course, integrating the societal concept, context into our existing curriculum. We'll be creating new courses that do this. We want to develop our student skills in research, policy, communications, leadership, and entrepreneurship. And for those of you who are here for the Entrepreneurs Network event today, um, what we're really saying is that we want every student at Princeton to, uh, to have the skills of entrepreneurship so that when they see an opportunity, they understand how to make a plan, bring together the resources, and execute it. And we'll be focusing all of our efforts by creating a new center for engineering and technology education. So just to give you a sense, obviously if you have a plan, you have to have some idea of what you're going to do immediately in the first couple of years and where you want to be, say, 10 years out from now. So, of course, we're going to start out by establishing this new center for engineering and technology education. The second one is to launch a new strategic graduate fellowship program. And this fellowship program is explicitly designed to provide our graduate students with more interdisciplinary and other leadership kinds of opportunities at the graduate level. So to give some fraction of our graduate students the same kind of breadth of experience that our undergraduates get. I think many of you will be very excited to see that we're going to pilot a new freshman curriculum that integrates the math, the math and physics that freshmen take with an engineering theme. That's so that more of our freshman students who are excited about engineering can actually get a hands-on experience with engineering in their first year instead of waiting to second or later years. Um, we already have uh, provide the opportunity for AB students to major in computer science if they would like. They can also do a BSE in computer science. 
we want to provide more opportunities for the AB students who still want to take a strong AB program, but to have more depth in an engineering major. And so we're going to be developing a number of new AB programs. And we're going to continue. We're not going to rest on our laurels as having you know, a really great re representation of women, African Americans, and so on. We're going to increase our student diversity. And by 10 years from now, so let me just go to the fourth bullet. We're going to be the first choice school for in student applications in engineering at both the undergraduate and the graduate levels. We want to be the place that everybody recognizes that you would want to go to learn engineering. Okay, what about this environment for high-impact interdisciplinary research? So one of the things we're going to do, one of the problems about universities is that um, I don't know how to say this. Research areas can change very quickly, particularly in engineering and applied science, science, because fields are moving incredibly quickly. And you want to have an ability to respond to tremendous opportunities. On the other hand, you need to be able to make plans and make commitments to directions that you think are going to have the most impact. And so what we are going to do is we're going to put in a new kind of hiring process where rather than saying to electrical engineering, here are three faculty positions, go fill them, or saying to mechanical and aerospace, here are two faculty positions, go fill them. We're going to have a competitive process so that as groups of faculty members across different departments come together and say, this place really needs somebody. We need somebody in biomaterials, or we need three people in biomaterials because we've got this strength here and this strength here and this strength over here, but if we had three more people that would link us all together, it would really push the engineering school forward. Well, we're going to give people that opportunity so that as the most important opportunities come up, groups of researchers and faculty can compete for these new resources. And similarly, we'll be um, having visitor programs and other kinds of things along those lines. We're doing this because we want to make sure that we give our faculty members the greatest opportunity to see where the future really needs us to go and then be able to move in that direction. We're going to accelerate and deepen our interaction with industry and government, uh, dramatically increase the flow of visitors to campus. We're going to be much more active in terms of winning more national center grants. And of course, we're going to build world-class facilities for teaching and research. Now, you might say, don't you already have world-class facilities for teaching and research? Well, I just want to mention the Friends Center is a wonderful facility for teaching. Thank you, Dennis. And for the library. But the truth of the matter is that we are incredibly cramped for space. The thing that limits our research and our teaching most in the engineering school right now is lack of adequate space. And so one of the things, even just for the existing faculty, that we most need to do is to provide them with the space, for, with the right kind of space for the research and for their teaching. Okay, so two and a half years out. This is what will have happened. Well, we ha will have started this new strategic hiring process. We will have improved our infrastructure for this large-scale research. That's for winning those national centers. 
uh, we will have started the SEAS Visitor Program. For those of you who uh, live and work around the Equad, we will have opened the Equad Cafe. It will be right at the entrance when you go to the Equad. It's going to be fabulous. It's going to open February of next year. And we will have completed our first new building, the Orphe Building, which will be on the corner of Olden and William Street, right over there. And it will open in fall of six. And if you look 10 years out, we will have hired 32 additional faculty. So that will take us to roughly 150. That's an increase of 25% over the next 10 years. So it will be roughly four per year for about eight years. We will have completed two more showcase buildings. The most important of those will be a prison building, which we hope will be well underway five years from now. A prison is the new Princeton Institute for the Science and Technology of Materials, and it's one of our major initiatives, as you'll see in a moment. Um, we will, everybody will be looking at Princeton to what's happening in, engineer, in engineering education research. Well, you can read the rest of it. So let me finish up with the key research initiatives, the areas that we have picked as the ones where we think we are in a unique position at Princeton to really have an impact, where we're building on strengths that are already present, where we're taking advantage of everything else that is happening in the university, and we can do, where we can do things here that very few other places would be able to do. We've divided them into two groups. The first group, in orange, are ones that are really around either new technologies or approaches, overall approaches to engineering. So the first one is engineering and life sciences. The next one is materials and nanotechnology, and that's uh, where that's being done within the context of our new institute prism. Um, the third one is information science and engineering, and the fourth is computational mathematical approaches to understanding systems. The ones that are listed in black are ones in which we've taken a particular societal need and coalesced around that. So the first one is urban environment. That's one uh, where we're going to be working very closely with the School for Architecture and also the Woodrow Wilson School and the Princeton Environmental Institute and look at environmental issues that affect urban areas. Next one is energy and a sustainable future. Third is engineering for the developing world and privacy and security, and engineering and culture. Let me just say a couple of words about engineering and culture. Um, one of the really most energized workshops we had was on engineering arts and humanities. Now, there are very few engineering schools around the country where you have joint programs between humanities or fine arts and engineering. One of the things that's extraordinary about Princeton is it already has several of these collaborations going on. So raise your hand if you've ever been to one of David Billington's courses. So David Billington teaches a couple of, uh, David's sitting there, wave David. <laughs> one, of the thing, one of the most extraordinary experiences at Princeton is to attend one of David's courses and see how he is able to integrate engineering with the culture in the development of technology and engineering with the culture that was going on in society at the time. And so we already have this link between the history of science and technology and extraordinary teaching and also research that's being done in the School of Engineering. 
Likewise, we have an extraordinary collaboration between the computer science department and the music school. So Perry Cook, who I think is still on sabbatical, is probably not here today, and is half between computer science and the music school, and um, does extraordinary things with sound and technology. Just to go in a completely different direction, uh, there's a long-standing collaboration between computer science and the entertainment industry. And there's also, uh, with Pixar, there's also a long-standing uh, double program between civil engineering and the School of Architecture. These are all things that are really quite unique to Princeton. And so the last one, engineering and culture, is to build on that, to grow that, to take advantage of that. So let me just say a little bit more about four of the areas. Engineering and the life sciences. I don't know how many times I've been told that uh, the 20th century was the century for, and sometimes you hear physics, sometimes you hear um, computer science, sometimes you hear engineering, but the, what always comes after that is the 21st century is the century for biology. Well, I'm not going to argue this one. I think that actually the 21st century is the century for engineering, and it's going to be the time that everybody understands that engineering is the most important discipline. <laughs> but, but one thing I do believe is that one of the most exciting areas for engineering and science to collaborate is between the life sciences and engineering. We already have tremendous strength in computational biology, um, in bio and bio-inspired materials, biological computation, and biologically inspired engineering. And one of the great questions at the trust Board of Trustees was, so what's the difference between computational biology and biological computation? <laughs> okay, someone uh, other than uh, somebody in that area, does someone want to guess the answer to this? Okay, Frank, what's the answer? Well, in computational biology, you're using computers to better understand biology. In biological computation, you're using biology to do better computing. Did you get that? That's well done. One of the best answers I've heard. That's better than I ever did here at Princeton. <laughs> That's because you learned something after you left Princeton. Okay, let me say a little bit more about PRISM. Um, one of the very first things that happened after I arrived here as dean was that we had a retreat where we brought together the researchers from two really wonderful um, groups that were already at Princeton. One was called POEM, which stands for something like Photonics and Optoelectronic Materials, and the other one was called PMI, which stands for the Princeton Materials Institute. And they're both doing wonderful things, but they're very different. POEM had very strong links with industry, PMI had a very strong science, emphasis on science and education. And last fall, we brought them together to form PRISM. And I can't begin to say enough about how excited I am about what's going on in PRISM. It's a place that you can go where you can find people who are working on incredibly exciting new materials. Um, just ask Steve Forrest, wave Steve, Grab Steve and get him to tell you about OLEDs or about solar cell, organic solar cells. or I mean, any of these things. It's just amazing. Um, ask Claire, where's Claire, to tell you about cas quantum cascading lasers, lasers something like that. Um, 
They, I mean, it just, you listen to these people and you can see the future unfolding in front of your eyes. But they're also doing wonderful things in terms of outreach into the schools. They're doing wonderful things in terms of the theory of materials. Um, I cannot say enough about how much I think this has to offer, not just the research community and the industry, but our students in terms of the ability to have an institute like this and be such a major part of Princeton. The other thing I want to say about PRISM is half the people in PRISM are not from the School of Engineering. They're from science departments. And so it's a great example of, again, two communities coming together and working together. Privacy and security. Ed. There he is, just about to run out the door. Um, well, you may not know this, but we are probably one of the best two or three places, and I would argue the best place in the world, for research on privacy and security within the information technology age. And um, the person I asked to wave up there is Ed Felton, um, who's really uh, has been incredible in terms of working on the strategic plan with us and in pushing forward this idea. Um, what we're looking at is really trying to understand how you can take care of issues related to privacy and security when you're having technologies such as sensors, uh, cameras throughout your cities, um, information on all aspects of all of our lives being collected on a regular basis. How do we create a system that preserves the privacy and security rights that are so important to our society and still enables us to take advantage of these technologies. Well, Ed Felton, Andrew Appel, Ruby Lee, Vince Poor um, are all people here who are working on this issue. This is again something that we're going to do very closely with another part of Princeton. In this case, it's going to be a joint initiative with the Wilson School. They're incredibly enthusiastic about it. The third one that I want to say just a little bit more about is the developing world. So of all the areas that came out of the strategic planning that surprised me the most, this was the one. Now the reason it surprised me the most was, um, this is something I've been really passionate about for about four or five years. And I didn't put it on the list of strategic planning workshops because I didn't think that there was a lot of interest in it already at Princeton. And to my amazement, at two of the workshops, this came up as a really major issue that people were really enthusiastic about. Now, what's the issue here? If you think about the future of this world, and what's going to happen in the next hundred years, the most important regions are really not the Western world or the developed world. The real issues are what is going to happen in the developing regions. What is going to happen in China, in Africa, in India? Because we know that it cannot happen that they are consuming the same degree of, say, uh, petrocarbon resources as we do. So one of the things about technology is that in the past, the driving force for technology is what can we make money with in terms of, and what can the Western world use this technology for? It hasn't, in general, been a driving issue what kinds of technologies would make the greatest contribution to the developing world. Or even, how can we best apply current technologies to address the needs of the developing world? And so one of the things that I think 
makes me the most excited about this particular plan is that this is something that came out, and frankly, it came out of the people who came to the strategic planning workshops. Some of those were faculty members, some of them were students, some of them were alumni. But there was a level of enthusiasm and energy around this that really astounded me. So, I think you'll agree with me that our goals are ambitious. This is a really, I mean, it may not seem that way to you, but down here on the ground and looking at what has to be done over the next 10 years to actually achieve this, we have set ourselves a very, very large ambition, goal, set of tasks. One thing we need to be able to do is we need to be able to measure if we're actually making progress. And so what we've been doing is we've been thinking about what, what are we going to measure now in terms of taking our temperature of where we are at the beginning? And what are we going to track as we move forward? Well, one obviously, and this comes back to the very beginning when I said, you know, where are we now, is to measure the reputation of our departments and programs. The second one is the quality and diversity of our faculty, staff, and students. Now, I mean, there are lots of, I'm not giving you the sort of SAT scores, GREs, uh, you know, who did they choose instead of coming to us, et cetera, and so on. But those are the kinds of metrics that one would use. The third one is what do our alumni do after they leave? Not just in their first, not, not just their first job or their first school that they go on to, what do they do in five years, 10 years, 20 years? because I really think that that's probably the most important thing that we produce is the students who graduate from here. What do we achieve with our research? You can say, uh, what's the input? So that's the amount of funding that we bring in externally, but what do we actually achieve in terms of impact? And what kinds of recognition do we achieve for our innovations in research and education? These won't be the only things they measure, but they will give you a feeling for the kinds of things we're going to be measuring. And as you look forward over the next 10 years, you will see that we will be developing much more detailed plans. We'll be, for each of our areas, we'll be developing a set of metrics, we'll be starting, uh, developing specific targets, and then we'll re be reporting on how we achieve them. So what next? Well, um, in all the presentations up today, at the, until today, the very first one was launch May 28th. <laughs> and you know, I have to tell you, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. I'm going to say, oh my God, May 28th happened. <laughs> <laughs> I have been dreaming about May 28th for months and months and months and months. <sighs> well, we have to do fundraising to achieve this. I mean, this is a—it's a very ambitious plan. It's going to take resources to execute it. So we have to plan that. But we also, we have six departments in the School of Engineering and Applied Science. Chemical engineering, civil and environmental engineering, computer science, electrical engineering, mechanical and aerospace engineering, and operations research and financial engineering. We decided that we would start out by doing a plan for the entire school and that we would have everybody participate in doing that. And that we'd do the plan for the entire school first, and then we'd ask each of our individual departments to then 
get together among themselves and say, okay, now that we've got this sort of umbrella, this framework for the entire school, how do we want to contribute to that? What's the role that we're going to be play in making this happen? So the departments are working on the strategic plans and they'll have finished that by mid-October. We need to get some lead gifts so we can actually push this thing forward and we'll be able to say, look, it's actually happening. We're doing this, we're doing this. And eventually we're gonna have a fundraising campaign and we'll be able to launch it and jump up and down and say, oh, we're gonna fundraise. <laughs> what I didn't put on this is, we have a pilot curriculum to get going. It's gotta be in place by fall 06, I think, uh, for this, uh, the combined integrated math, physics, and engineering. We have the Center for Engineering Technology Education to do. We have all those things on those milestones. We're going to be very, very, very busy. It's not gonna be me that does it. Who's gonna do it? Sergio? Warren? Absolutely, I'm there. <laughs> it's going to be us all who do it. It's going to be our faculty, and I have to say the faculty have been amazing on this. I mean, they really, I think they started out being pretty cynical at the beginning, and in the end they have been just amazing. It's going to be the faculty, it's going to be the staff, it's going to be the students, and frankly, it's going to be the alumni. This is not something that any piece of us can accomplish without the other pieces. So what I'd like to do next is I'd like to ask a hand-picked group of current students, current faculty, and alumni to come and say what this strategic plan means to them. This is the list in order. And uh, I'm going to ask each of them to briefly introduce themselves to you before they say why this plan excites them, what they think it offers the School of Engineering in Princeton. Don. I'll tell you what, let's give Maria another hand. That was a fantastic I'm in the class of 69 by this jacket, right? This is, a, this is a wonderful opportunity for me. I'm a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. I'm a mechanical engineer from the class of 69. I've gone through lots of strategic planning processes. And there are always three questions. Is there a vision? Are the constituencies bought in? And then thirdly, is the plan executable? All right? I was sitting here getting excited once again by this plan. These are big ideas. This is a big idea. The team has pulled together what used to be an inward-looking engineering school, just like Hewlett-Packard and IBM turned to outward-looking engineering organizations. Marie and the team have done the same thing. This is now an outward-looking engineering school. The second thing is the constituencies are bought in. Faculty, students, alumni, and in fact, the deans of Berkeley, Caltech, MIT, Illinois, Harvard, Duke, all participated in this process. This is not just our university. This is other universities saying, Princeton, we want you to be better because a rising tide lifts all ships. Thirdly, is it executable? You saw here 10 PowerPoints, all right? 
there are probably a thousand raw pages distilled down to a hundred executable pages. So it's a real deal. It's going to happen. I look forward to my reunion five years from now and ten years from now to see this all come to fruition. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Don. Hi, my name is Avanav Agarwal. I'm a senior in the electrical engineering department. Uh, when Maria first asked me to participate in this strategic planning program, I was very, very skeptical. You know, this, these kinds of things happen with every change in leadership. You've got to have a new strategic plan, an overhaul. Would it really achieve anything, or would it be like Shakespeare said, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing? After all, you know, I was a hardcore engineering student, not some McKinsey management consultant. Would I have the time? <laughs> Would I have the time to participate in these workshops, you know, go through making, you know, mission statements and, you know, all that other stuff. But I'm thankful that, you know, she convinced me to participate in it, and I had a great time participating. And something fundamental happened when we were working on it. I realized that we were working on some really critical issues. Where is this engineering school headed? Uh, what are we going to be doing in five or ten years? And, you know, that went beyond just creating, like, a sexy mission statement and some glossy brochures, although we did a good job on those two. They're outside. <laughs> They're really nice. Um, so I was going to talk about the diversity uh, with the more women, but Dean Thaway kind of stole my thunder there. Uh, you know, trust me, as a male engineer, it's, it's kind of nice to have a girlfriend who understands what you're talking about. So I'm excited about the fifth reunion. Uh, <laughs> But, so let me, the part that I'm really excited about, though, is the integrated uh, freshman year uh, curriculum. When I first came to Princeton, all I took freshman year was physics, mathematics, and chemistry. And let me tell you something. The math department here stinks. It's, it's awful. And, you know, it, it just stinks. It, it, there's no, there's no, you know, they have eight majors a year. That's, you know, it's not surprising. And <laughs> most of my friends who were engineers who eventually ended up not doing engineering, it wasn't because they didn't like electrical engineering, or it wasn't because they didn't like the professor in mechanical engineering. It was just because math was too hard, and you know physics was not fun. Or they were stuck Thursday night, you know, doing a chemistry lab while their friends were out on the street. So hopefully, this new integrated curriculum will change it, and we'll get to do some real engineering freshman year. That would be that would be really exciting. Um, the other thing is sort of the ability to do uh, research. Uh, if you're like me, you find classes boring, problem sets, exams, professor. Uh, you know, who want, who wants to deal with that? What you really want to do as an engineer is tinker with stuff. You know, you want to take a piece of equipment, you want to uh, mess around with it, do some research on it, maybe get some grants, you know, go to a research conference if you can. And hopefully this new uh, focus on interdisciplinary research will give, a, will give all of us an opportunity to do that. Uh, last of all, it's so nice that we're going to have an e-quad cafe. Now all we have to do, all we have to do is get the hours extended to 3 a.m. <laughs> Classes are boring. <laughs> I'm Margaret Martinosi. I've been on the engineering faculty in electrical engineering for 10 years now. Uh, and so as with some of the other people, I think, I was a little bit skeptical at first. And what I'm going to talk about in my two or three minutes here right now is one session at one strategic planning workshop that sort of changed me uh, and made me a lot more enthusiastic. So uh, as Maria mentioned, uh, engineering for Developing Nations became one of the themes that came into the strategic plan. And one of the sessions in which it came up was a roundtable at a workshop in which a bunch of us who had been thinking about this issue but thought we were sort of each on our own about thinking about it realized that there was actually a, a serious critical mass, a community of people interested in these sorts of problems. 
In my case, I've been working on a project called ZebraNet for the past couple years, where my grad students and I and some other faculty are building novel wildlife tracking technology. And in January, we brought it to uh, Kenya, to Princeton's Impala Research Center, and deployed it for the first time on real live zebras. Um, so it was very exciting. It's, a, it's an example of technology that's very interdisciplinary, but it's also gotten us thinking beyond the specifics of wildlife tracking and thinking more about how to support uh, technology in developing nations more generally. So what do we mean by that? We mean things like low-cost networking technology for sparsely populated areas. In America, we talk about the last mile problem, which is getting broadband out to someone's home in a neighborhood. It's very high cost for the number of people who use it. Well, imagine if you have a sparsely populated area with relatively um, poorer people who can't pay as much for that service. How do you get not the last mile, but the last 10 or 100 miles of service out there? Another key issue that's related is distance learning in developing nations. So in, a, in, in many countries, the urban populations are fairly well served by schools, but when you go out into the smaller towns, there's quite simply a teacher shortage because everyone who's educated enough to teach is trying to get out of the country and into the cities where the incomes are higher. And so the ability to use technology to get teachers and teaching materials out to these sparsely populated areas is a really important problem. There are real engineering research problems to solve here in terms of uh, coming up with low-cost solutions, solutions that match the constraints of the issue. Um, and overall, I think it's really exciting because what engineering is about, to me, is about taking scientific theory and translating it into, into societal impact through real-world solutions to things. I think it's exciting for students because they get a broad view of things. They get to see prototypes that actually change people's lives. There are broad tie-ins to places like Woodrow Wilson School, other pu public policy aspects of the problems. And so it's really exciting. It's fun to think that what I had thought would be sort of a hobby, a sideline, something I would do in my spare time, is now something where I can join together with colleagues, faculty, and students, and work on real solutions uh, across the disciplines. So that's my spiel. Hello, my name is Rebecca Peterson. I'm a fourth-year graduate student in the Department of Electrical Engineering. I actually have a little scam here going on, <laughs> three speakers in a row from EE. Um, but the part of the proposal that I'd like to focus on is something that isn't identified as a bullet item, and that is the concept of C's being a much broader engineering community. It's this idea of broadening and deepening what it means to be an engineering community. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, Dean Plowey has here given us a vision of a place where AB students can come and take a class, not be intimidated, where BS students can worry about what the societal impact of these technologies they're learning about, um, they, where visitors from around the world can buy to come spend time with their Princeton colleagues and where students are transformed into engineering leaders. Of course, Princeton does all of these things already and does them well, but this vision gives us renewed enthusiasm and strengthen, strengthens this commitment to deepening our definitions of who and what are part of a Princeton engineering education. Working in a high-tech field, 
I'm constantly uh, struggling to explain what I do um, to non-engineers. Uh, usually by the time I get past, I'm an electrical engineer who works with semiconductors. The eyes glaze over and you know, it's hard to sustain conversation. The dedicated do push forward and usually ask me questions that subsequently I can't answer. But um, you know, I would hope that we would be in the business of educating students who not only can explain their field to a non-technical audience, but who also um, can really articulate a clear vision for why they're interested in that and why they're ready to commit their lives um, to being a leader in that engineering field. Um, I think the plan is even more ambitious than that, though, because it calls for the design of these new AB programs within engineering departments. To me, this is a radical uh, idea because it's saying that not only do we need to train super specialists who know what engineering is about, but we need to train all people in what engineering is about, and that every person in the 21st century needs to be a Renaissance scholar. In order to be that a Renaissance scholar in the 21st century, you need to know something about engineering. And I think that's a very important contribution that Princeton is uniquely poised uh, to make. And I think uh, the addition of courses and new AB programs is, is going to really make a difference. Um, finally, I think the other aspect of this program, which brings out the same idea of broadening the community, is that of inviting visitors, um, both from the university, industry, government, and nonprofits. And by visitors, we mean a lot of alumni also, um, to come and share their expertise and to work with uh, colleagues on campus. By bringing visitors in, we not only get their new energy and resources and ideas, but we also um, basically have a, a way to share what's going on in SEAS with the community large, out, largely outside of central New Jersey. So I think this common thread that runs through the vision is what excites me, this idea of expanding uh, what an engineering education is about and who is involved in it. And I hope that all of you can catch the fire uh, that's in this vision and uh, join together to make it happen. Thank you. I'm uh, Ronnie Sarkar. I'm a faculty member in the uh, Operations Research and uh, Financial Engineering Department. Uh, just a few minutes before this presentation, Margaret and I were comparing notes about what are the many points uh, we'd be uh, focusing on, and Margaret reminded me that it's always oh, easy for you. You guys are getting a new building. Uh, so obviously, that is very exciting, and uh, we are looking forward to that bricks and mortar uh, in, uh, in 2006. Funnily, our current students, juniors and seniors, they absolutely do not want to hear about the building. Uh, you cannot tell them about it because uh, they'll have graduated by the time uh, it is up. But we hope that when they become alumni, they'll come back uh, and visit us. I was very uh, privileged to be on the planning committee for uh, the workshops, and I was a co-organizer of one of the workshops, which was um, understanding complex systems. And uh, one of the advantages of uh, one of the benefits of being involved uh, in that was uh, the great interaction we had uh, with uh, uh, many colleagues. We were a committee of 11 from all six engineering uh, departments plus uh, applied math and um, some other parts of the campus. And uh, we had many meetings uh, leading up to the workshop and it was very um, instructive uh, to uh, learn about the uh, research that other people were doing both within C's um, and uh, on other parts of the campus. And that was also something that came out of the workshops. Uh, one of the challenges that we had in this workshop on complex systems was to try and, if not define, to at least narrow down what are complex systems. And um, the cross-disciplinary nature of the committee and the attendees, um, I think, helped us in that uh, regard. So we were discussing 
things, whether they are complex systems such as financial markets, which is something that I'm interested in, or whether they're biological, ecological complex systems, or the internet, and what the common techniques and approaches are. And that's one of the bullet points uh, that Maria mentioned, computational and mathematical approaches to complex systems. And obviously, I'm very um, excited about uh, initiatives in, uh, in that area. Uh, one other part that I'd uh, uh, just like to mention is the development of the AB programs, and uh, we're very much looking forward to um, uh, going in that direction and strengthening the ties uh, to other parts of the campus through uh, an undergraduate program in that direction. Hi, my name is Sarah Moore. I just finished my sophomore year of chemical engineering here at Princeton, and I love being here. As an undergraduate, as many of you have been there know, they treat us well here. And I believe the strategic planning process has really shown that they care about us. I participated in two of the 11 strategic planning workshops, and I honestly feel that being there as an undergraduate made it so that the other participants were even more interested in my ideas and opinions than if I'd been attending in any other capacity. That alone is a testament to me that there's a maintained emphasis on the undergraduate here at the engineering school. And this plan goes much further than just listening to undergraduate concerns. It outlines concrete ways to address them. In reading through the plan and talking to Maria and the other deans who have been leading the strategic planning process, I have been amazed at the energy that has been and will be devoted to improving undergraduate education. As many of you already realize, we do have a strong program here already. We have amazing opportunities to work closely with world-class faculty. We have the resources of the greater university readily accessible to us. And our classmates are some of the top undergraduates in the nation. At the same time, there are areas in undergraduate engineering education that could benefit from some attention. Because of the dedication to undergraduates that I've seen during the strategic planning process and in the product of that process, I'm excited about the prospects for the undergraduate engineering future year. One desire that all engineering undergraduates have is a desire for top quality teaching. Every student has likely had at least one professor or graduate student assistant instructor that has been a truly fantastic teacher. We've also all had those classes that did not receive exactly perfect marks on course evaluations. The plans for establishing the Princeton Center for Engineering and Technology Education will be a giant step in, a, in moving towards excellent teaching in all instances. Professors and teaching assistants will soon have a resource help develop both engaging course plans and their own teaching abilities. The center will also work to support classes that really show the cross-disciplinary nature of engineering and put technology in a societal context. Two approaches that I believe will move Princeton to a position of leadership in undergraduate engineering education. Another frequent comment from C's undergrads, as Avanov alluded to, is that the freshman experience here leaves you wondering what exactly engineering is. We're not exposed to the exciting applications of engineering until very late in our curriculum. The initiative to develop a first-year freshman experience integrating real-world engineering applications with fundamentals of math and physics will really change this. No longer will engineering freshmen spend their hours in unconnected introductory math and science classes wondering what it is that they're saying when they claim they're engineers. Instead, the School of Engineering will be able to captivate BSC students from the first semester showing them what engineering actually is, and assuring freshmen that they made the right decision when they checked the BSE box instead of the AB box on their Princeton application. 
One last aspect of the plan that I wish to highlight is the summer experience support that SEAS will soon provide to undergraduates. Over the past two summers, many of my friends have been able to locate rewarding positions in research over the summer, but have had difficulty in locating funding. Plans to provide direct support through seed funding and inject support through guidance in locating other sources of funding will address this issue. In addition, we have a fabulous network of loyal alumni and friends who are also a valuable resource. You all can provide valuable career advice to us and also facilitate the formation of Princeton-specific internships that expose undergraduates to the variety of fields that their technology education prepares them for. Such internships will not only benefit the students, but also the employers, who will gain a top-quality employee who will likely be a prime recruiting target once they finish their, their career at Princeton. The C Summer Internships Program will be a driving force behind the formation of such relationships between students and entities representing the variety of career pathways from industry and academia and business to government and nonprofits. Undergraduate education is a primary focus at this university. And I know and I realize and I strongly feel that the Princeton Vision Strategic Plan will further thrust undergraduate engineering at Princeton into the spotlight as a great program with great potential to be even better. Hi, my name is Kristen Becky, um, and almost exactly one year ago, I graduated from the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department here at Princeton, and then three, three months later, I moved up to Boston and started graduate school in aerospace engineering. And I am excited about the Princeton vision because I believe it will create engineers who can ask, who do ask and answer the question why instead of just the question how. Um, I have to admit that when I started in the highly focused, intense academic environment of graduate school at a technical research institute that is very different from the liberal arts university um, at, of Princeton, I, was, uh, I felt quite out of my element. In fact, I was distressed. Um, it, seemed, it was hard, it was your first time, but um, it also seemed that so many of my fellow students seemed to be solving problems just for the sake of solving problems. They'd always been good at math and science, and so they continued to do math and science. Few students seemed to be asking, why am I doing this? Um, and that caused me to begin to doubt whether I had found a satisfactory answer to the question of why during my undergraduate years at Princeton. We always hear that as alumni, we'll be in the service of the nation and all nations, but I have to admit that my fellow MAEs and I didn't talk too often about how we would actually do that. Um, and so I, in my first few months of grad school, I became increasingly unsure of whether or not my engineering studies and research really mattered. Um, but then, in February, I attended the strategic planning roadshow in Boston, and in Dean Clave, I was extremely encouraged. In Dean Clave and the rest of the team, I saw a group of people who were determined to make Princeton's engineering school a place where, uh, a place that challenges its community to think about and understand the societal context of engineering. In the future, the question why will be asked and answered at Princeton, and for my generation of engineers um, who live in a world that has a huge number of problems to be solved, they're very complex, it's essential that we start asking that question from the start of our engineering education. So if I do continue in academia and um, become a professor, 
Princeton, the new Princeton School of Engineering, um, is the kind of school where I would want to teach. I feel really lucky to be an alumnus of an engineering school that wants to be number one, not for the sake of being number one, but because being number one would mean that a high school student who's thinking about college and career choices will know that engineering is a way that they can make the, better, the world a better place and that Princeton is a school where they can learn how to do that kind of engineering. Oh, that was awesome. Okay. Take it away, sir. Boy, are, are these young uh, gra uh, students, recent graduates, faculty from Princeton terrific? Let's hear it for them. Hi, I'm Frank Moss, class of 71, uh, aerospace and mechanical sciences. Um, uh, what I do is I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I take uh, money from guys like Don. And uh, used to get back more, but occasionally we give it back. <laughs> used to get back a lot more, a little bit less now, but we still have fun with the money that we take. Uh, let me just tell you a quick story, um, which I think is, uh, is, is timely here. On the way here, I was checking my mail, my email, and there was a, uh, an email from a, a friend up in Boston. Uh, she happens to be a female biologist who was telling me that her daughter, the, the last of three daughters, is considering applying to Princeton and wants to know if she should do that. She said she had heard that Princeton was a male bastion uh, that doesn't change uh, and that's very inward-looking. And I think I'll tell her about this meeting here, uh, beginning with how the president of Princeton and the dean of engineering gave each other a big hug. <laughs> so I have to start with a confession. Uh, during my professional career, uh, when it came time to... Uh, from a commercial point of view, look to a university for new ideas and innovations, uh, I would look toward Harvard and look toward MIT. Um, and uh, this went on for years and years and years, so this was all, of course, before the more recent developments here. When I heard uh, from Dean Clave that she was going to undertake this, uh, this strategic planning process and change Princeton to make it a destination, as I like to call it, for innovation, I was very enthusiastic about it. I must tell you, having participated in it, I am honored to have been a small, a very small part of it. And everything that's happened here has greatly exceeded my expectations. It's just a terrific, terrific job that you and the faculty, the students, the alumni, the staff, the administration have all done. They're really to be commended for a terrific job. Uh, in my experience, uh, taking an institution that's very, very successful and changing it, particularly one with a tradition that Princeton has, is very difficult. It takes courage, uh, it takes integrity, and it's very rarely done. I uh, just want to tell you another brief story that uh, when uh, Maria gave the, uh, uh, the strategic planning event up in Boston, she was a little bit late. We were waiting for her, and someone told me that she had the Princeton bug. I think it was a very virulent strain of something that was going through the university here. I think the football team was calling up their mother or something. It was so bad, you know. Uh, and uh, Maria came in, and I uh, went to shake her hand. And she said, I'm not going to shake your hand. I said, well, <laughs> what did I do? I haven't even started yet, you know. And she said, uh, well, I happen to have this terrible flu, and I don't want to shake anybody's hand here. So she went around and she told everybody, you're not going to shake, she's not going to shake their hand. Now, I say when you do that to a bunch of Princeton alumni, that's both courage and integrity. <laughs> so I knew that we were going to be off uh, to a good start there. Let me just make a few comments. Uh, I was asked to talk what I'm enthusiastic about. You know, obviously, uh, Princeton is a destination for innovation. It's a very exciting prospect. I look forward to it. Uh, there are very specific proposals uh, within the strategic plan 
uh, for activities uh, for entrepreneurship, for reaching out to industry, for commercializing uh, Princeton's technology. They're in there. They're specific. I expect them to be very, very successful. However, I am also very gratified that the plan has integrity. Uh, the idea, as we've said several times, was not to turn Princeton into another MIT. God forbid. <laughs> uh, and you can look at the plan and see that its focus is really on what's important, and that's educating our students, giving them a better educational experience. And I'll tell you, you know, I get the willies when I, uh, I hear the words setting the standard uh, for engineering education throughout the world and really changing what ed engineering education is all about. There are words taken from the strategic planning document. They're inspirational to me. I think they're really going to push this forward very, very fast. So the plan has integrity. Uh, the plan is complete. It has lots of exciting aspects to it. I just want to talk about one thing, and that's the term interdisciplinary, which is used time and time again in terms of integrating together all these different uh, academic areas and disciplines. It's very, very, very important. Um, it's my belief that the really great challenges, the grand challenges of the next 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years uh, will be met by individuals who are capable at making connections, making connections between ideas and theories, between data, uh, between people, uh, between organizations. And this plan that's been put on the table, I think, promises to create a whole new generation of students who are capable of making those connections better than anyone else in the face of the planet. It's important to me, personally, because I think one of the grand challenges over the next 25 years or so is to find ways of accelerating finding the causes and cures for disease. And certainly uh, integrating the kinds of uh, uh, disciplines that Maria talked about, computational biology, biological computation, molecular modeling, uh, engineering, all coming together, biology, physics, are going to be key to creating that kind of understanding. So I look forward to a time when some of the great breakthroughs in finding cures to disease are made over a coffee and donuts at the Equad Cafe. <laughs> so for my, uh, so for my, uh, um, for myself, I think I'm going to go back to Boston and tell MIT and uh, Harvard to buzz off, and I'm going to get to work on this plan. And I hope you'll join me. <laughs> to thank our wonderful voices from Princeton. Thank you, each one of you. Abhinav, uh, you know I'm teaching calculus next fall. <laughs> and I'm doing it just because of all the students who told me that they hated how math was taught here. Um, we have a reception waiting for you out there. And I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, you in groups and individually. And if I don't talk to you this evening, please feel free to email me or send me a letter. Um, I want all of you to be part of this plan. I, am, I cannot tell you how excited I am. Uh, the next 10 years are going to be amazing. And uh, I hope you're going to take as much joy and excitement and enthusiasm as I have as we move forward and do this together. Thank you for coming here today.